Luke chapter 7. Okay, today starting in chapter 7, we're going to be covering the healing of the centurion's servant and also the resurrecting of the widow's only son. Uh, it's safe to say that compassion is the operative word here today. Looking it up in the dictionary, compassion means this, a sorrow for the sufferings and the troubles of others accompanied by the urge to help. So you have the centurion's compassion for his servant, and you also have the crowd's compassion for the widow by losing her only son. But most of all, you have Jesus' compassion for all those involved. And let's not forget Jesus' compassion for us in the form of the cross. So let's, let's go into the scripture, starting with verse 1. It says, Now when he concluded, concluded all his sayings and the hearings of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Now, a centurion is a Roman military official over a hundred men. These people were leaders, they were tough, they were self-sufficient, and they were very familiar with death. Another notable centurion in Acts chapter 10 was Cornelius, where Peter leads he and his family to the Lord. Now, Matthew 8 records the same story as Luke, but he also adds that this servant was paralyzed and suffering. Uh, the centurion had compassion on his servant. Why is that unusual? Well, we have a battle-hardened military commander being concerned for a slave. And back then, slaves were very common. Actually, in one point in the Roman Empire, we've said this before, the half of the kingdom was, was slavery, was in, in some type of bondage. And their punishment for runaway slaves was very harsh because at some point in time, if the slaves actually got together, they could have taken over. But people, they treated their slaves like chattel back then. If one would die, you would just go out and replace them, sort of like an appliance that broke down. It was very cold. So let's go to verse 3. It says, When he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Why is this unusual? Because the Jewish elders hated the Roman oppressors, especially the enforcement arm, the military. So this guy must have been something special for these people to, to like him. Um, the guy's an authority figure, but he's humble. I've got to tell you, it bugs me when people think that they're better than others. You see it with ethnicity. People, you know, I just use Italians for an example because I'm Italian, so I could do that. But people think, well, all Italians stick together. Well, if you go to Italy, you've got your northern Italians and your southern Italians. Some have red hair, some, some are dark. So, uh, you know, even within ethnicities, people look at differences in people and they find fault and they, you know, they, they discriminate in a sense. Education. People with a bunch of letters at the end of their name, they make, it makes them feel more important like they have the right to be above other people. Geography, even look at New Jersey. What do North Jerseyans think of people from South Jersey? What do South Jersey people think of people from North Jersey? I won't say, but you know, I'm sure you can think of some of those things. And also professions, you know, what do you do for a living? Oh, how blue collar. You know what I'm saying? It's people just look down on each other for stupid reasons. But the most disturbing thing that I find is when it happens in a church. Um, Seriously, turn to somebody next to you right now and say, if you're a believer, we'll spend eternity together. Go ahead, turn to somebody and say that. <laughs> Verse 4. Made some new friends today, huh? 
And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was worthy. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Again, this passage of scripture is filled with oddities for the culture at the time. Because likewise, as the elders, the Jewish elders hated the Romans, the Romans hated the Jewish elders. Why? Well, the Roman occupiers and the Jewish religious leaders had to live in harmony together. They had to coexist. But the Jews caused some problems for the Romans because of their oppositional religious beliefs. First of all, you wouldn't, if you were, um, they wouldn't allow the Gentiles or the Romans in pretty much most of the temple area, the religious area, except for the court of the Gentiles. Now, keep in mind, the Romans conquered Jerusalem. They conquered the Jewish people. But there's still exclusionary practices being uh, taken on. Uh, number, number two, most observant Jews wouldn't eat with Gentile in that culture because it meant being one with them. So in that time, it was, uh, it was literally, you heard the expression, let's break bread together, let's, let's go you know, have dinner. And what they would do is in that time, they would take you know, loaves of bread, long loaves, and with their hands, they'd eat with their hands and they'd break it and they'd give it to the next person and they'd break it. People's hands were all over the food. I would have loved to live back then. And then they would dip together and, you know, it was very, it was like a koinonia in the Greek, that closeness. Uh, three, most observant Jews wouldn't permit Gentiles in their home, especially during the Passover preparation. Remember, um, you had to get rid of the leaven. That was a picture of sin. And the Jews would prepare by going through the whole house trying to find that leaven and getting rid of it, getting rid of the sin uh, spiritually in that sense. And obviously the Gentiles were spiritually unclean. They were ceremony unclean. And then the last one is Jewish monotheism and Roman polytheism clashed in many ways, including statues, um, standards, military standards, etc. The Romans had a lot of icons. They had a lot of you know, symbols that would represent things, a lot of graven images. And in the Ten Commandments, right off the bat, it says to the Jewish people not to have graven images. Uh, even their military standards, when they would go off into battle or they would march in parades, they'd have these really long poles with, with flags hanging from them and different pictures of, of you know, like, um, like sculptures of different animals all the way up, and they would, all, they would mean something different. Uh, at the top could be the, the bust of an emperor, and below that could be different symbols based on what division, troop division, they were from. And the Jews had a problem with that. But the Roman military especially hated the Jews because their attitude was, we conquered you. What gives you the right to tell us what to do? You know, we're the conquerors. So they were certainly gleeful in 70 AD to destroy the temple. And like Jesus said, they did not leave one stone upon another. They were so happy to have the orders to destroy that whole religious system and to slaughter all those Jews. Uh, it was payback time in their minds. So you kind of get an idea in your head what's going on culturally, politically, religiously in that area. So this centurion has a love for the Jews, which was amazing. It shows that God was working on the centurion's heart. It's like, never be surprised when the unlikely get saved. You ever hear people say, oh, did you hear Bob got saved? Oh, boy, that guy was a wild man. It's like, we were any better. You know, we, we actually, after we've been a Christian for a while, tend to, oh, I can't believe that person got saved. Why? Were we any better than that? We're not. Verse 6, it says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant shall be healed. Pride. What about pride? Proverbs 16:18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. 
but pride was the standard for the Roman military. If any of you had read anything about the Roman military, they were very prideful people. They conquered the known world, and they were continually enlarging the Roman border. To the south, it was hot. They would keep uh, conquering further south. To the north, it was cold, and to the mountains, and they would conquer the mountainous people. That's just what Rome did. So it was amazing for this centurion to show so much humility. You know, you, you got a, a battle-hardened military commander going to a young Jewish rabbi and humbling himself to him. It's kind of hard for us to comprehend that. The only thing I could think of is just, just think about the war in Iraq. Think about a, a you know, battle-hardened military commander going up maybe to, you know, his servant is sick, and he, he's looking, and he hears about the Christians, and he finds maybe a young Iraqi boy who's a Christian. And he says, you know, I've heard things that you can do, that you can do amazing things with, with your God. You know, would you please, please come to my servant? Don't even, you know, come here because, because I'm this type of man. I've seen a lot of bloodshed, but, you know, I, I've heard really amazing things. So that's the only way that I could kind of make that parallel. But because of this passage, I've just thinking a lot about the soldiers and our soldiers in general. And, you know, they have a tough job. People say, when, I, when I'm in uniform, people say, oh, I, I, if I couldn't be a cop. I'd shoot somebody. Aren't you glad to have psychological exams for police officers? <laughs> All these people running around with guns saying they're going to shoot somebody. But we, we have it tough because we have to play by the rules and the criminals don't. But I've got to tell you, soldiers have it far worse than we do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to say that. You know, you never know when you go into battle if you're going to lose your life or a, a buddy is going to lose their life. And if the very, very best you come out of that battle, you could lose a limb or lose some type of bodily function. But in today's climate, you know, these soldiers have to play by the rules, but terrorists don't. And i got to tell you, it's really disgraceful for me to see people trash our soldiers. You're taking a young man or a young woman, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and putting them in these impossible situations. Regardless of what you think of the war, you've got to support our soldiers. It's very important. Pray for them. You know, people wouldn't have the ability to say what they think about this country without the soldiers. It's not the Supreme Court that protects our Constitution. It's the soldier. Because if the Supreme Court was overrun, if this country was overrun, they'd all flee for cover while the soldier would stand in line and defend our rights and our freedoms. So, you know, kudos to the soldiers. And I'm praying for you guys if you're listening to this, and I make my son pray for you also. But verse 8, it says, For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. He says, I am also under authority. The centurion received orders from a chief military officer, and he delegated those orders to his troops in the field. In the same way, Jesus receives orders from the Father, and he also has command over diseases, demons, and all of creation. Do you see the parallel that's struck here that the centurion realizes? The centurion probably thought just like he was to receive orders and from a remote location he could send his soldiers to do what needs to be done, he figured Jesus could do the same without even being under that roof. It blew Jesus away. This man's faith blew him away. Verse 9. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. 
I also want to read what Matthew says in his gospel. He adds a little bit more, just two verses, uh, Matthew 8, 11 through 12. Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I've said this before, there's that expression that if you're, when you're in heaven, you might be surprised at the people that make it. Wow, I didn't expect you to see, see you here. And you might be surprised you're looking for somebody and they didn't make it. So who ends up in heaven and who doesn't may be a surprise to a lot of people. But the faith of many Jewish people back then in general, including the disciples, his own disciples, was weak at best. And this despised, oppressive Gentile who believed that the Messiah could do anything. His behavior far surpassed, and his faith far surpassed that of God's people. Is that true now? Sometimes? It's kind of sad to see situations where unbelievers' behavior far surpasses believers' behavior. In our society, Christian behavior is getting worse and worse. And, you know, you you see stuff that happens, especially in the media, because they find the worst of it, and you just kind of, oh, that's the representation of Christianity. But um, there's a lack of reverence for God. Is it just me, or do other people see that? Okay, there's a lack of reverence, big time. People just, God's their pal, God's their bud, you know, God's last on their list. They want everything the world can offer. They're running here, running there, trying to, you know, get, get successful and get all these things. And God's last on the list. There's a lack of reverence today for God. And also, people are just not open to correction anymore. Do you know what Proverbs 9 says about someone who's not open to correction? They're a fool. I've got to tell you, even as a pastor, some of my biggest decisions I make, I check with other guys who are pastors who've been down this road. I have a handful of people that I bug when I get into a pinch, and I ask them, how do you do it? I'm open to that correction. I, I'm happy when a pastor who's, has, who's seasoned speaks to me and sets guidelines for me that he thinks that I should follow. Correction is always a good thing, people. It's always a good thing to be able to take correction. And also... People want their way at all costs. Have it your way. I call it the Burger King doctrine. People just want to come in and they just want to have it their way. They just they want to tell you what to do. They want the church to capitulate to their lifestyle. Have it your way. And you know what? It doesn't surprise me because there's a lot of false doctrine out there that pampers people. The God wants you to be rich doctrine. Don't work for anything. Don't struggle. Don't build that approved character through trials and sufferings. God just wants you to be a big spoiled brat. He wants you to be rich. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to get everything that you ask for. What would you do if that was your kid? What kind of kid is is that going to grow up into being, right? So certainly God doesn't want that with us. Or again, some churches, they just, whatever, you just come in, do whatever you want. We don't care. We won't offend you. We won't talk about sin. We won't talk about hell. We won't talk about the cross or Jesus shed blood because that could hurt somebody's feelings. We're just going to think happy thoughts, you know, talk about happy things. You know what? The fact is, it's all about him. It's not all about us. It's not all about me. It's all about Jesus Christ. So Tuesday, my wife kicks me out, and um, actually, I've got to be careful how I say things. She was having a women's Bible study, so I had to leave. One day, somebody called me up and said, um, where's your wife today? It was an unbeliever. I said, well, she's in the prison. And I said, let me clarify that, because it was silence on the other end. I said, she's teaching a Bible study in the prison. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. (laughs) 
So anyway, the other day, Tuesday, I leave the house, and I think I'm going to run some errands, and I go across the street because they're building a big addition to somebody's house, and I, I met this contractor, young guy, nice guy, start talking to him. Well, I guess there was a divine appointment because I ended up speaking with him for an hour, and one of his workers handed out Bibles and just kind of tell him about the Lord. But um, his biggest problem, <laughs> he's a funny guy. He's like, yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins, and he just doesn't want to make that commitment. And his excuse is Christian hypocrites. Christian hypocrites are keeping him from coming to church and furthering his walk with the Lord. And you know what? There are hypocrites, and we've all played the hypocrite at one point or another. And I have. We all have. But the bottom line is God will deal with those people. And I try to explain to him, when you stand before God and you try to point fingers at all the hypocrites, God's going to look at you and say, okay, but what did you do? You know, that's not going to be a good excuse. It's a smokescreen. So just like this, uh, you know, centurion here, we all have to be concerned individually with our relationship with God. That centurion's relationship was already being cultivated to draw him towards God. Verse 11. It says, we're switching gears here, it says, Now it happened the day after that he went to a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him, and a large crowd. The next day, he and his disciples enter the city gates of Nain. Nain is about 20 miles south of Capernaum. Verse 12, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. So what you have here is a, a clash of two crowds happening. You have those mourning the loss of life, the fear of the unknowns of the afterlife, and the other crowd. The other crowd that was following Jesus, having assurance of eternal life and living life more abundantly. Where are you today? Was it a few years back, Iran had this big earthquake, and I think the numbers were 40,000 that died in that earthquake. Those are big numbers. How do you tabulate those numbers? You know, there's so many villages, and, you know, it must be a good estimate, but give or take a few thousand. A few thousand is like ten times the size of the people in this auditorium. Those are big numbers when you think about 40,000. How many uh, hundreds of thousands were killed in the Pacific during that tsunami? The numbers are probably higher than they estimate because think of all the people living in little villages, living in the beach area, that they're not represented by the government, Right? What about the 30,000, Pakistan, India, and Afghanistan? They had that big earthquake that went through all three countries. 30,000, big numbers. I mean, we think about the township of South Brunswick here. It's a very big township, and uh, you know, during the day, the daytime population is like around 50,000 people. Imagine the whole township of South Brunswick is wiped out. You go all around South Brunswick, you don't find one soul. That's a lot of people losing their lives. These are big numbers. We think about what happened in 9-11. Over 3,000 people killed when the towers went down. That was devastating for us, and some people still haven't recovered. Well, the bottom line is, if you keep rolling the dice, eventually your number's going to come up. Do we think that there won't be an earthquake here? Do we think that there might not be another terrorist attack? Do you have that assurance of eternal life? That's very, very important. Let me read 1 John 5, 11 through 13. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. John says this, And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son of life, he who has the Son has eternal life. 
He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. These things I have written to you, that you believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. To know that you have eternal life, to have that assurance that if you repent of your sins, ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, let him have command over your life, you have that assurance of salvation, if you want it. And I'm, I want to take a little, little bit of a turn, talk about death for a little bit, a little bit of a macabre subject, but I think it's appropriate for you know, the story about the, the resurrecting of this widow's son. The Encarta Encyclopedia says this, Death is the irreversible cessation of life, the loss of living entity's essential characteristic. The autonomous, the autonomous system, the heart and the lungs, shut down. Death is characterized by algor mortis, where the body starts to cool. And then it's rigor mortis, the stiffening of the skeletal muscles. And then liver mortis, where the blood pools to the lowest point of the body because of gravity. The lymphatic system, which acts as an internal trash system, and all other systems, including the immune system, shut down. When that happens, the body immediately becomes overrun by microbial invaders, insects, and their larvae. Pretty disgusting, huh? from which now start the decomposition process, returning your body, look at your body, it moves, it flexes, it's got nice color, all of a sudden your body starts to be returned and decomposed to the same dirt that God brought us out of many thousands of years ago when he made Adam. The same dirt that God picked up and went, he breathed life into it, is the same dirt that we all go back to, except if the Lord comes back for us. The most dreaded call that a police officer has to go to, one of the most dreaded, is it's called check on the well-being. Neighbors haven't seen or heard. The mail is piling up. The lawn hasn't been cut. The car is still in the driveway. It's 90-degree heat out, and all the windows are shut. You know where I'm going with this one. I actually hope for an armed robbery to come in before I have to go to this call but, or, or get a, a rookie to do it and convince him that he needs the experience. But once the door is kicked in, the smell will knock you out. It's overwhelming. And I won't describe what the bodies look like for the purposes of those of you who have just had breakfast. But I'll give you one instance. There was a dog who was in the house with the guy, and the dog was there for a few days, and he got hungry. You can use your imagination. There's a reason for this. Trust me, I haven't lost my mind. (laughs) If you've only seen death at a funeral home, you haven't seen the full effect. Death is offensive. Death is noxious. Death is heartbreaking. Death is awe-inspiring, and it shows us how mortal we all really are. If there's anything else you get out of that, to realize our own mortality. Uh, Psalm 89:48 says this, What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Salah. So, again, hopefully the Lord will come back and save us soon, otherwise we're all going there. Verse 13 When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Now, before we've walked through the man with the withered hand, did he have muscular dystrophy, was it something else? We've walked through some of the different afflictions and the biologically what happens and the reversal process, how Jesus heals them. But here, in a span of a few of Jesus' words, this dead son's decaying process of his body reversed. His body tissues were completely restored, and his spirit was rejoined with his physical body. That's pretty amazing. That's something that you can't fake. There's a whole procession going on, and all he does is he touches the 
you know, as they're carrying him, he touches the, you know, the piece there, and he says these words, and, and the, the man uh, raises back to life. That's pretty amazing. And verse 15, it says, And he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. So Jesus shows compassion, and he presents this guy to his mother completely whole, without any infection, without any uh, lasting effects. He's just made perfect. My question is, what happened to this guy? How many years did he live now only to die again? Just like Lazarus, just like, remember, Jairus' daughter, she was resurrected only to die again. Um, you know, did he put his trust in Jesus as his, as his Lord and Savior? How many people get a second chance at life with a vital organ transplant or be revived through a CPR or defibrillator save? Happens a lot. Or have their life expectancy increase via modern medical science or wonder drugs? Um, Lance Armstrong, he, he might have been for a while a spokesperson for Bristol-Myers Squibb. He does that commercial where he talks about the drugs that saved his life through cancer. They reversed the cancerous tumors and all that stuff. But, um, you know, what, what's he doing with his life? Does anybody know? Is he a Christian? Has he given his heart to the Lord? What good is coming back to life only to die again? What good is only delaying death and delaying hell another few years if you're not, you know, right with the Lord? Speaking of hell, and it's not a real pretty subject, but it, it's a fact. And it's good to speak about it because when people understand what it is, number one, hopefully it'll give us a charge to really pray for those that we know that are unsaved, to really pray for those that we know that are really going the wrong way, to really maybe open our mouths if we're a little intimidated to speak about our faith. Maybe we'll open our mouths because of this motivation. But some groups like Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and many others just believe it's a separation. Now, if I'm an atheist and somebody knocks on the door and I open the door and say, we'd like to tell you about Jesus, I say, you know what, I'm an atheist, really don't care to know about Jesus. Well, did you know that if you die and you don't believe in Jesus, your mind will cease to exist and you'll just be in the ground forever? Yeah, I'm an atheist, that doesn't bother me. Have a nice day, close the door. Okay, I'm an atheist, knock on the door, open. We'd like to tell you about Jesus. Well, I'm just I'm an atheist, I'm really not interested. Well, did you know that if you die and you don't know Jesus, that hell is a place of fire and torture and torment? I still might shut the door on you, but I might think about it a little bit, maybe do a little research on the subject. Now you got my attention, right? Well, let's talk about it a little bit. Hell is fire. James 3.6 and Matthew 5.22 make that very clear. I hate fire. I've been burned before. Love firemen because I hate fire. Love it when there's a house fire or a car fire and the firemen get there before me. Love that because I hate fire. Matthew 13.42 says that you will be cast into the furnace of fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth. We actually had a book at the book table that we had to remove because it, it really minimized hell. It was like the pal- palatable version of hell. So I was like, you know what, we're not going to carry that anymore. It's not true. It's a lie. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be crying and there's going to be anger and there's going to be horrible feelings while you're burning. Um, Revelation 21.8 It says that the second death, the spiritual death, is characterized by the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Brimstone was known as a a type of, um, like a sulfur that burned. So, you know, there's no mistaking fire and brimstone. Revelation 20.10, it says that it's a place of torment forever. What does forever mean? It never ends. It never ends. 
You ever watch a movie that's really so bad and you don't think it's ever going to end, but two hours later it ends? Hell never ends. There's just no ending to it. Revelation 19.20, cast alive into the, flake, into the lake of fire. This is a place of consciousness. You are cast alive. You are aware that you are burning. This is a bad thing. Um, I don't care how people try to sugarcoat it. It's a very bad place to be. It's consciousness. So, there, so you know, the Bible says that when we die as Christians, our bodies change. We get a new spiritual body. It's a glorified body. It's different because our body decays. Uh, you also have the understanding that when people are cast into the lake of fire, they get a different body so they can endure that, that suffering. So it's a pretty bad place. Matthew 25:40, it says it's an everlasting fire. So not only is hell everlasting, but the fire never goes out. It can't be extinguished. But the good news is this. Now that I gave you all that bad news, here's the good news. John 5:24 says this. John 5:24. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death unto life. So just as the everlasting torment, the everlasting fire, the everlasting weeping and gnashing of teeth, here is the other end of the spectrum, everlasting life, eternal life, eternal bliss, eternal happiness, eternal comfort from the Father. Revelation says there'll be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain for the former things have passed away. All that stuff doesn't exist in heaven. So where we are really right now is a proving grounds in a sense. Verse 16 and 17. It says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen us up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and the surrounding region. God has visited his people. The word for um, Jesus is actually a word in the Hebrew. The full word is Yehoshua, which means God is salvation. God has visited his people. God is salvation. He showed compassion for these people personally. So, to wrap things up, the centurion showed compassion that exceeded in many ways the compassion of God's people. Let it not be said of God's people, let it not be said of us that we're just too busy. We've got our set schedules and we're just too busy. That we're cold and unmoved and too concerned with our own lives to have those divine appointments. That Tuesday, I had a lot of errands to do. They were starting to pile up. And when I'm off, I do my errands. And I didn't get to do them that day because I was talking to that contractor and one of his workers for over an hour. Uh, and, you know, in the flesh, probably I would have wanted to get all my stuff done during the day, but God had a different plan for me. And we've got to be able to move with the Spirit. We have to be flexible when God asks us to do something, to change our, our direction and do what he asks us to do. Jesus' compassion far exceeded, for the widow of Nain's son, okay, his compassion far exceeded the restoration of a loved one. By restoring that young man back to life, he would be able to continue to provide for his mother and not leave her a poor old woman. So it was a relationship issue and a function issue here. The relationship between a mother and son was restored, but at the same time, the function that that son provided in that culture to be able to take, to, his mo to take care of his mother in her later years, that was also restored. Compassion can come in de many, many different forms. Provision of food for the hungry, a blanket or a coat for somebody who's cold, a shoulder to cry on, or sometimes just to be a good listener. 
Sometimes we, we, we want to help people so much that we want to just give them our advice, but sometimes people just want to talk, and they just feel better. It's a catharsis. It's a release of emotions to have a shoulder to cry on and just talk to you and for you to just do nothing but be a good listener. And then afterwards they say, oh, you're such a good friend. You're, you're such a... And you're thinking, what? I didn't even say anything. But you're just being a good listener. So I pray that compassion is a, a daily staple to all of our Christian walks.